while I'm getting this one handed out, you can turn your Bible to Revelation 20. ago uh, we began looking at Revelation chapter 20 um, we talked about uh, I think that was the second time we've been in Revelation chapter 20 first time we looked at it we talked about um, the possibility of it being a recapitulation a retelling of, of a story um, in reverse order as uh, Satan is introduced in chapter 12 the, the beast uh, the beast of the earth, the beast, uh, the beast of the uh, sea, and the beast of the earth uh, introduced in chapter 13, and Babylon as the harlot, the counterfeit um, Trinity, and the counterfeit Church of Christ. Um, they're, they're counterfeits because they're Satan's, and so they're introduced in an order, and their destruction is told in reverse order, and so we see the destruction of Babylon in uh, chapter uh, 18, I believe it is, and the destruction of the beast, uh, uh, both the beast of the, of the sea and the one who is the beast out of the earth, who becomes a false prophet, are destroyed in chapter 19. And then we see the destruction of Satan in uh, chapter 20. And um, we see at the end of chapter 19 the description of the battle uh, when there's the... the uh, the battle between uh, the beast, um, the beast out of the sea, and the false prophet, and how they raise up an army to go against Christ and his people, and the battle insurges, and then the description of the battle and the aftermath of the battle with the calling of the birds to come and prey on the, on the bodies that are there. It's, it is exactly the description that you find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then at the end of, or, or the battle is, so it's described in chapter 19, the same battle that we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39, only in Ezekiel 38 and 39 it's called the battle of Gog and Magog. And then in chapter 20 when we see uh, another battle, or it's, it's actually I think the same battle, but it's the battle with Satan in his destruction. It is called the battle of Gog and Magog. It's described in chapter 19. It's actually called the battle of Gog and Magog in chapter 20. And so I'm thinking it's talking about the same battle, just looking at it from different angles, because one is the destruction of the, of the beast and the false prophet, and the other is showing it uh, the destruction of, of Satan. Then uh, we, we looked at some of the other issues in uh, Revelation chapter 20. The last time we were together, we looked at the, um, the, the terms, um, the, the term a thousand years. We saw that the thousand is used 
um, symbolically throughout Scripture, meaning you know the, the full nature of things, such as he owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He owns all the cattle. It's the fullness of all the hills. He owns all the cattle on all those hills. It's the fullness of it. So I've suggested that this thousand years is the completion, the fullness of the years between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Um, that, is, that is a particular view that, that I hold, is that this thousand years includes all of the, this time. There are other views, and I know that they're out there. Um, and then we talked about, well, if this is true, that means that, uh, because it talks about the fact that Satan is to be bound during this thousand years, we say, how can he be bound? Um, when we see so much activity that we attribute to Satan right now, and, and even Peter says, uh, Satan's a roaring lion and roaming around seeking whom he may devour, and we've got to be careful about him. Well, um, the, the binding of Satan is quite specific here in uh, chapter 20. It's not a binding from um, doing anything at all, but it's a binding from deceiving the nations. And at the end of the thousand years, he'll be released for a short period to again deceive the nations. And so what's all that about? Well, we talked about the fact that in, at the fall, when the man who had been given the right to uh, govern all of, the, all of this creation and was, was uh, given the authority to be fruitful, fill, uh, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. We were supposed to do that. We were supposed to be the royal ambassadors for God as we go throughout all of the world. And yet Satan came and he tempted the woman and tempted the man. And when they ate of the garden, they ate of the fruit that was forbidden for them. What are they doing? They're, they're giving that authority to Satan. And so Satan is thus called the, the prince of the power of the air, the, the king of the kingdom of darkness, the, the, the prince of the ruler of this world, right? He's described that way throughout scripture. So when he comes to Jesus, when Jesus is in the wilderness, you recall, um, he, uh, the second temptation he takes, second or third? Third temptation, he takes him up to a high place and he says, look, all these kingdoms, the world, they're mine. I know you came to get them. I'll give them to you. All you have to do is bow your knee to me. Right? How could Satan offer that? Well, he offers it because that's his. It was his. But Jesus tells us in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, uh, when he's accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he says, you know, Satan's kingdom can't stand if it's divided against itself. He says, um, if, if I cast out demons by the power of God, you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he tells us an interesting thing. He says, in order to plunder a strong man's house, you first have to come and bind up the strong man. And it's the same, same language here, the binding of Satan here. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to the earth. I'm binding the strong man. I'm going to plunder his house. His house is the world. And he's plundering his house by the gospel going out. And Satan can't stop it. Satan can no longer deceive the nations and keep the gospel from going into all the world. And so that's, that's the way I would understand here the binding of Satan during these, these thousand years. Um, now we need to look at a, at a few other things, especially in verses 4 through 6. There's a couple more things that we need to consider here. So uh, let me get somebody to read for us uh, Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who were the authorities and the 
word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What is the uh, location of this vision? What do you think? Where could possibly be the location of this vision? It's in heaven. I think it is in heaven. Um, I think it's pretty clear um, that it is in heaven. What are some things in there that might clue you to the fact that it is probably in heaven? What does he see? He sees thrones, and we're going to talk about that because that's, that's a real important thing here. We're going to get to that next. But before he, he sees the, the – or after he sees the thrones, he sees something else which would suggest it's not a physical uh, – it's not a, not a place of a material nature. The souls of those beheaded. He sees the souls of those who have been beheaded for Christ. He doesn't see the individuals himself. He sees the souls of those who have been beheaded. That would – I think certainly suggests that the vision is a vision of, of, of a, he a heavenly vision, if you will. It's not um, part of the material world, but it, it is uh, a heavenly vision. It's the location of the souls of those who have been martyred and have gone on. Uh, you can kind of compare verse 4 with chapter 6 and uh, nine, verse 9. <clears throat> and this is, uh, you know, no question at this point, this is a uh, heavenly vision. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, when, the, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witnesses that they had borne. Uh, what is he seeing? Souls. souls of who? The martyrs. The martyrs. In, in chapter 20, the martyrs are called, the, those who have been beheaded, they're martyrs too, right? And I think that probably the idea here is, is of, of all the martyrs. And so you can see that there's definitely a, a kind of connection here between chapter 20 at this part and chapter 6, where it's a, it's a heavenly vision. And you're seeing a very, similar, uh, very similar things. Now, <clears throat> Bill had mentioned that uh, the word that, that you're seeing the thrones here, and that gives us an indication that it, this is a heavenly vision. Um, if you look on your your handout here, it's under B. For some reason, I got it typed out. One goes over there, and B comes this way. It's, it's the wrong way. It's not supposed to be that way. But anyway, um, this is one A. Let's talk about who was seated on the throne. Uh, on the thrones, those who will judge, and I think it's probably the, the martyrs that are there. Um, the location of these thrones seems to be in heaven, especially when you compare chapter 6, uh, verse 9, with 20, verse 4. And now let's look at how the word throne is used in the New Testament. 
um, and how it's used in the book of Revelation. And really, we're only going to look at how it's used in the book of Revelation. The word, the Greek word for throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those times are found in the book of Revelation. That's quite a large majority of them, right? And so let's, let's consider how it is used um, in the book of Revelation, the, this whole idea of, of throne. Two times it's used for Satan's throne. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 2. That's kind of inverted there, isn't it? Dyslexic. Dyslexic, yeah. So uh, it's two times it's used for Satan's throne. Satan's throne, again, would not be a, uh, a literal physical throne on this earth. Um, rather, it is uh, much more uh, in the spiritual realm. One time it's used for the beast uh, throne in uh, chapter 16, verse 10, with the idea, I think, more of his rule uh, than necessarily than, than just throne. Four times it's used for God's throne on the new earth, uh, having come down from heaven with a new, new heavens and new earth. And so it's both a heavenly and an earthly throne at that point. You see that in chapter 21 and 22 for those four times. Forty times throne refers to a throne in heaven, either of either that of God the Father or of Christ or the 24 elders or so on, whoever's ruling in heaven. Forty times in the book of Revelation, 40 of the 47 times it's used of, uh, of a heavenly throne of God, Christ, the 24 elders, and so on. Robert Strimple uh, said the Revelation, uh, throughout Revelation, the throne of Christ and his people is always in heaven. And he lists several examples there that uh, you want to look at sometimes. Throughout Revelation, the throne of Christ and his people is always, without exception, in heaven. This is a throne of Christ and his people. And so it would stand to reason that just as all of the other places where you see it, Throughout <clears throat> Revelation, it would still be in heaven here as well. Uh, uh, Sam Storms uh, says, When we look at all the other relevant occurrences of thrones, whether inside or outside the book of Revelation, they're all, without exception, heavenly. There is nothing to suggest that they pertain to a millennial earth, uh, either in location or character. There's thrones during this time when there's going to be ruling of the saints together with Christ during this thousand years. It's a heavenly reign. Uh, it seems to be, especially when you consider the fact that thrones are always used uh, in, in, in light of, of God and his people being in heaven and uh, Christ and the, the elders and all that, they're all in heaven. And so the, if, if it were an earthly rule and the thrones were earthly thrones here, this would be the one exception in the whole book of Revelation and in fact in, in the entire New Testament. So it seems that there's definitely the idea that this is a heavenly uh, a heavenly thing that's going on here. Uh, the thrones are in heaven and the fact that he sees the souls of those who've been beheaded uh, there as well. It seems that it's definitely a, a vision of something going on in heaven instead of uh, an earthly physical thing that's going on here. And so this is what's going on <clears throat> with God and his people during this thousand years. This thousand years, the rule, the heavenly rule. Okay? So um, 
that seems to be pretty clear. This, this is going on in verses 4 through 6. Uh, for certain, it is something's going on in heaven. Uh, what is the meaning of the term first uh, resurrection in verses 5 and 6? And this is, this is a little bit more difficult because uh, throughout the New Testament, the, word, uh, the Greek word used for resurrection is always talking about the, the physical resurrection at the, at the end of life and stuff. But here it talks about the fact that in verse 5, right after, right after he talks about the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony for Christ, uh, testimony of Jesus, the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast in his image and not received a mark on their foreheads, uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, uh, let's see, it says the first resurrection there somewhere. Yeah, just at the uh, end of five. Uh, at the end of five. Okay, yeah, this is the first resurrection. Yeah. Okay, so what is the, this first resurrection? Verse 6, it talks about it again. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Uh, they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, so what is the first resurrection? Like I say, throughout the New Testament, almost, uh, almost exclusively, the term resurrection means a physical resurrection. What is it here? We've been saying this is a, this is a, a scene in heaven, and he's seeing the, the beheaded Christ uh, having being part of the first resurrection. Um, even though the word throughout the, the New Testament is used uh, almost exclusively, this is the only place in the New Testament where it's given this modifier. What's the modifier? Resurrection is what? First. First resurrection. The only place we see the first resurrection. So that in itself is going to set it apart from all the other places we see the word resurrection. Okay? It's got the modifier first. We need to try to figure out what it means by first resurrection. Um, let's see. Only, as Sam Storm says, only here in all the New Testament is the ordinal. That has to do with the order. <laughs> the first, second, third. Ordinal first uh, appended to the noun resurrection and reflect on its significance. Uh, so what is first in uh, contrasted with in Revelation 20, verse 1. Someone read Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key. I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 1. Oh, okay. Sorry. You said 21. I, I did. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What is uh, first contrasted with there? Heaven. New. Who said new? That's good. Yeah, it's contrasted with new. There's a there's a new heaven and a new earth contrasted to the first heaven and the first earth. Okay? So you see a contrast here that's uh, first can be contrasted to that which is new. Okay? things around. <laughs> now, we can kind of contrast this as well with uh, the idea of death. Those who participate in the first resurrection do not participate in the second death. What would the first death be? 
Physical. A physical death, right. What is the second death? Eternal yeah, it's eternal punishment. The second death is, is when you're being um, cast into the lake of fire. You know, the eternal punishment. They're going on. So you got physical, the first one, first death would be physical. The second death would be uh, more of a, it's spiritual in nature. It, there certainly could be physical aspects to it. I'm not denying that, but we, we certainly would see it more in light of the fact that you're uh, <clears throat> going out and being um, punished for, for all eternity. Um, and so we, we see that with the, with the first, between the first death and the second death. One is spiritual, physical and the other is spiritual in nature. Now, the other sheet that I gave you, and it, and it contrasts these two things. Okay. Um, get somebody else to read. Somebody mind reading uh, those first three points there? There is, first of all, the first death, which is obviously a reference to physical bodily death. It is the death to which the martyrs were subjected when the beast beheaded them for refusal to worship his image. Then we have the second death, that is, a non-physical death which consists of eternal punishment. Thirdly, the second resurrection implied by the existence of a first resurrection is certainly the physical, bodily resurrection of the unjust. Okay, so we certainly know that it, that involves the bodily resurrection of the unjust, but I think that there's more uh, there too. Um, someone else want to pick up there? It seems reasonable then that the first resurrection will sustain to the second resurrection the same relationship which the first death sustains to the second death. So what then is that relationship? The first death, as we have seen, is literal and physical, whereas the second death is metaphorical and non-physical. The first death, because it is first, relates to this present world with its transient and presumptive character, whereas the second death, because it is second, relates to the next world, the consummation with its permanent and eternal uh, Go ahead and just finish. Surely then, since the second resurrection is literal and physical, and perhaps and pertains to the consummate and eternal order, the first resurrection, because it is first, must be metaphorical and non-physical and pertain to the pre-consummative, temporary and transient order of things. I don't understand that at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So it's kind of what, what you say, you got a first death physical. See, see if I can kind of try to draw it. Um, first death. resurrection certainly experienced this right but then there is a second death which is um, non-physical and 
So uh, it, the, the way we relate to resurrection is those who experience the first resurrection do not experience this. Um, and there's a second resurrection. in which I would suggest both will. So this first resurrection is non-physical. And the second resurrection will be physical. So he's saying the relationship is kind of a reverse thing. First death, physical. First resurrection, non-physical. Second death, non-physical. Second resurrection, physical. So that's how, that's how he's... Is what he's suggesting there. Is that, is that making any sense to you? Not yet. <laughs> I'm going to have to hear it ten times. I'll get it. <laughs> It'll be on the website by Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so. Metaphorical means a metaphor, a metaphor, and that means uh, naming one thing to help you understand the second or something like that. Yeah, that would that would work. A metaphor is a comparison. Simile is a comparison using like graphs, right? So a simile is a type of metaphor. But uh, but anyways, so metaphorical. I think he, he's using metaphorical in this more to say it's non-physical. Okay. So so we, we know that the second death isn't a, isn't the death of the physical body, right? That's already happened. Yeah. Right? They've all, all already experienced the, the physical death. The, the martyrs have certainly already experienced the physical death, but they're not going to experience the second death. But they have experienced the first resurrection. That means that, uh, see if this helps, they're raised spiritually. When, when a person dies today, and when we talked about our uh, general eschatology, or personal eschatology, excuse me, what happens to believers when they die? Yeah, their souls go. Our, our souls go to heaven. Yeah. That's a resurrection. Uh-huh. And that's what I would suggest that the first resurrection means. The souls have been uh, departed the body. Paul says, for me to die is gain. I desire to depart and to be with the Lord. But his physical body is still here, but his spirit has been resurrected into the presence of the Lord. And so, and so what we're suggesting is this first resurrection, which we see here, the souls yeah. of those who have been beheaded, they're there. But he doesn't say, I saw their bodies, not their heads. Or I didn't see their, their bodies to, with their heads together there. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the sake of Christ. So we're talking about the first resurrection. Believers die. They souls go up to, to be with the Lord. And I believe that that is what the first resurrection is. <clears throat> if you experience the first resurrection where our souls are raised to go on and be with the Lord, you're not going to experience the second death. We, we don't have to go through that. Mm-hmm. If, if you're a believer in Christ, we don't, we don't go through that. <clears throat> the second resurrection, we will experience that on the last day, right? Um, we, we, we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks when we talk about uh, the resurrection and the rest of the New Testament. We'll see that, yes, on the last day, we are resurrected to face judgment. Right? And
and we'll, we'll see. I, I think the rest of the New Testament is pretty clear in teaching us that the, the second resurrection happens the same day as judgment. It happens for believers and for non-believers. You don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament where they're resurrected at different times. And is that where it separates the sheep and the goats? I, I think uh, it's pretty clear. I mean, Matthew 25 is one of those places where he says, you know, um, you did all these things for me. Come and enjoy my blessings. And he'll turn to those who didn't. And he says, depart, you know, go into uh, the, the punishment that's ready for you, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Uh, and thank you. Uh, now I finally understand. Okay. Yeah. That was easy. <laughs> All right, where are we? Um, back to this one. <clears throat> the, um, Sam Storms puts it like this. What's the difference between the first uh, and second death? We've discussed that. Uh, in summary, that which is first or old, which we see the, the difference between the, the new heavens and the new earth compared to the first, heavens and first earth or the old okay in summary that which is first or old pertains to the present world that is to say that which is transient temporary and incomplete even though we're resurrected at this point that's not the final stage is it no if if fixed in the presence of jesus right now right when jesus returns what happens is what we see in first corinthians 15 his body and, and the spirit are reunited, right? So we'll kind of go through this. So, so uh, anyway, even that situation where our bodies depart, where our spirits depart and going to be with the Lord, it is it is uh, uh, temporary. It's transient, temporary, and incomplete. Certainly, God created us body and soul. Right? And so, if we have a spirit or soul without a body, that's not the ideal situation. In creation, and so we want to see that, that, that them reunited. So anyway, um, conversely, that which is second or new pertains to the future world. That which is permanent, complete, and is associated with the eternal uh, consummation of all things. The term first is therefore not an ordinal in a process of counting objects that are uh, identical in kind, rather Whenever first is used in conjunction with second or new, the idea is uh, quali qualitative right? uh, contrast. is a qualitative contrast, not a mere numerical sequence. To be first is to be associated with this present, temporary, transient world. Uh, whatever the first does not, whatever is first does not participate in the quality, uh, finality, and permanence. Uh, which is distinctive of the age to come. For similar contrast between first and old, second and new, see those passages in the Hebrews. What then is the difference between the first and the second resurrection? Well, first resurrection, our soul parts our body and is with the Lord, but it's not the body. The second resurrection, we see other parts of the New Testament. When our Lord returns, the bodies come up out of the grave and, and they are united. Uh, with the Spirit to come with Christ. So when Christ comes, you remember. Huh? Why did he say that? <laughs> Why did he say that? <laughs> you know, you go to be raised and your spirit's going to be with God, your body's going to be in the ground. Mm -hmm. Then when you're united for the resurrection, 
Yeah, I think that in 1 Corinthians 15, you see it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you see it happening. When Christ returns, he comes with the saints, and their bodies are, are resonated. And we, we will not perceive them. Um, as Paul says, we're not going to perceive them, but we'll go meet them in the air. If he's coming with them, and their bodies are coming up to be united with them. Isn't that suggestive of that? I I don't know about code. It's it's written in pictures, certainly. Well, it's written in code so the Romans don't figure out what it is. <laughs> That's a new so, one. So, God Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I do think that there's certainly a, a first resurrection. And he says that, you know, those beheaded souls have experienced a first resurrection. We know that um, when, when Christ returns, it's called resurrection when our bodies come up and we're reunited with our souls. Is that, that's where I'm getting it from, like a... or second resurrection and it belongs to the eternal state and um, and since uh, we, we know that those who have experienced this don't experience that so I don't even think it mentions the second resurrection but if there is a first there would be a new one as well the fact that this is a temporal not a permanent but when this comes it will be a permanent I, I, it's clear to me if it is not the anybody else. <laughs> That's okay. Well, so for the Christian, the first resurrection follows at death, at the first death. I believe so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second res resurrection is when the Christian's bodies and souls are reunited at I, Christ's coming. Right, I think so, but uh, all people are resurrected here to judgment, and so they're, they're resurrected to death at that point. Right. We die into a resurrection, so that's, this is more turning. Oh. We, we, at first death, we're resurrected in uh -huh. non-physical way. <coughs> At uh, the second resurrection, we're, we're raised in a physical way, but they're raised to death. Oh, so that's different to the non-believers, too. Non-believers then. Uh, well, when the non-believer dies, where's their soul? 
Um, I, I believe that there's it goes to a, a place of punishment. It's not purgatory, uh, but it's not the final. Uh, okay. I, I mean, because we see uh, uh, Jesus giving the uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus dies. He's in the bosom of Abraham. He's being comforted, but the rich man, lives, yeah, he's being tormented. And so I believe that that's there, but that is before the final judgment. He's not okay. So not necessarily the lake of fire. No. That will be thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, yeah. I oh hell, yeah, that's right. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Hades oh. is uh, the holding place of, oh. of the dead. Kind of like a holding tank for, for final things. Yeah. Before Jesus comes to the earth, nobody went to heaven. It said, in the Old Testament, they went to Abraham's bosom. They never did say they went to heaven. Paul once somebody said they to be with God. But to be absent somebody to be with God. Mm-hmm. But Abraham and all their mothers, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom, which might be in heaven. Yeah, they, they, there's talk of, of, of a holding place, the departed Sheol, and, um, uh, but there, there's, there's a place of comfort. Tell the, the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. Okay, well, we see that we still have questions about even general eschatology or uh, um, personal eschatology. Don't, don't have it completely all down, but that's okay uh, because uh, Jesus uh, will return and um, when he takes us to heaven, it, it will be good. No more sorrow, sickness, pain, no more crying or mourning. All the old things have gone away and everything has become new. Um, all right. Um, so, clear as mud? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Um, I think we're, we're done looking exclusively at Revelation 20. Um, I think dealt with everything that there that I necessarily wanted to deal with. We know that it goes on to talk about Satan's demise, but we've 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 looked at that briefly just to say, you know, it's it's uh, the, the way it, it looks. You know, they're coming up against God. It's the battle of Gog and Magog, and and they do battle and they're destroyed, and he's thrown into the the uh, lake of fire, and uh, with the beast and the false prophet. They'll be tormented uh, day and night forever and ever. So, Okay. Uh, the next few times we're going to get together, we're going to um, look at, apart from, from Revelation, we're going to look at things that the rest of the New Testament tells us explicitly will happen at the end. And we're going to look at that um, 
probably two weeks of looking at those different things, and then we're going to say, all right, the rest of the rest of the New Testament. Because when you look at Revelation, you ask anybody, what's the most difficult book in the Bible to understand? Revelation. We've already seen some of that tonight. Um, when when you uh, are interpreting the Bible, do you take the unclear passages and make that fit? Make the rest of the Bible fit those unclear passages? No, it's the other way around. Why don't you use the clear passages to help you understand the less clear passages? So I want us to take what is obviously clear teaching about the, the return of Christ in the rest of the New Testament. And then I want us to compare that with the different views that are out there today and see which one um, most clearly, you know where it's coming, it's going to come out in my view, right? But we're going to see which, which, uh, which one most, uh, which view most clearly fits what I believe to be the clear teaching of the New Testament. Um, and so we'll, we'll look at that. One other thing is... <clears throat> We've we got to be careful, all of us do, a little bit, again, on how to interpret the Bible. We've got to be careful that we don't say, here's my view. I'm going to make all New Testament, I'm going to make all Scripture fit my view. Let's, let's do it the other way around and let the Bible uh, instruct us as to what our view should be. And uh, so that's what I want us to do is, as we look at uh, the rest of it. And so we will, we will look at that. We're going to look at things. We're going to see uh, what the Bible tells us about the last judgment. We're going to see what it tells us about, the rest of the New Testament tells us about resurrection. We're going to see what it says about salvation after Christ's return. We're going to see what it says about um, death after Christ returns. Um, we're going to see what it says about the possibility of salvation after Christ returns. And we're going to look at these five things and say which view fits best with the New Testament's teaching on these five areas, all major issues with the last day. Okay. Last day singular. All right. All right. Well, let me pray for us.